0: everybody, and welcome to the one and only podcast dedicated to the greatest game in the world,
1: Advanced Squad Leader.
0: And this is the podcast show,
1: The Two Half Squads.
2: And I'm Dave.
1: And I'm Erin. And this is our special guest,
2: Old Man Dan.
1: And is it disrespectful to call you Old Man Dan?
2: Why, I don't
1: mind at all, sonny. Do you mind if I call you Sonny? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do mind. I believe Sonny is very degrading to children. Well,
2: I guess I could call you girly, but that would be even worse. Uh,
1: okay, why don't you just go ahead and call me Sonny?
2: All right then, Sonny boy. Sonny it is. All
0: right, old man Dan and Aaron, shall we do some letters?
1: Yes, we shall. We have a letter here from John Hoey from Philadelphia. Just finished enjoying show 97. Some week when you need a topic, I thought it might be interesting if you looked at and talked about some of the ASL blog sites that are out there. There there are a bunch of good ones. Here are a few that I'm aware of, and they sent us some helpful links. There are some guys out there being creative and contributing to the community. Thought it might be worth a mention.
0: Yeah, and it certainly is worth a mention, John, and thank you very much. We have, um, I think we've tweeted out some of these sites before, or maybe briefly mentioned them or had them linked somewhere, but um, yeah, actually going into those sites and discussing what can be found there, that sounds like a great idea, isn't it, Aaron? Yep. What do you think, old man? Dan?
2: Well, I think it sounds like a dumb idea, but you know, what do I know? Oh. All right, Dan, well, why don't you take
0: the next letter then?
2: Well, Alan Hume writes us and says... Well, you were right. Upon further inspection, the King Tigers did indeed turn up in Beyond Valor. Hooray! But now I'm wondering, what about Yag Tigers? I wonder if you, or listeners, can help. Are there any Yag Tiger counters in ASL? And if so, where can you find them? I had a hunch they might be in Camp group Piper. Or do you say Paper, Which I don't own, but honestly... I don't know. Hope you guys can help. Best wishes.
0: Well, Aaron, do you know in what game the Yag Tigers can be found? No idea. And actually, I don't either. So, we're going to turn this one back over to the listeners. They're out there somewhere. Maybe they're in Beyond Vale, or it seems like they should be, but we'll find out. Aaron, you want to take the next letter? Sure.
1: Alright, now we have a letter from Matthew Morocco. Hi guys, another righteous episode. Had to break my rule again and give you an informative, fun, interesting. Too bad there isn't a satisfactory option. Hate to have it go to your heads. Here's a link to a government study on air power versus bridges. Basically, you would build a bridge below the waterline to avoid it being spotted from the air. To the aerial observer, he would just see a stream or a river. I attached a picture I found on the Internet. It's from Vietnam, but I'm sure World War II guerrillas and World War II Japanese Army used it to avoid bombing attacks. Here's a link about an underwater bridge that was heavy enough to support trucks. Anyways, great episode, gentlemen. Clink and drink. Matt from sunny L.A.
2: Now,
0: Aaron, that's because... uh Underwater bridges are an ASL, and we—we we, I wasn't quite sure why they would build them underwater. Mm-hmm. So now you can see why.
1: All right, yeah, that makes sense.
0: That airplanes can't see them mm-hmm. to bomb them if they're under enough water, I guess. So I learned a lot from this, and we'll, we'll put a link up about this one so the viewers can see this link.
1: All right, sounds good.
2: Well, I have a letter here from Steve Elliott. He says, Bob, parentheses, Cletus, plus bar, equals solid gold. What what the heck does that mean? B-A-R equals solid gold.
0: Well, old man Dan, he is referring to when our guest host, Bob Holmstrom, did the box art review. And he said it was solid gold, and I would agree. Bob adds a whole lot to Box Art Review. Did you listen to that episode, Aaron?
1: Um, I think not.
0: Oh, sorry to hear that.
1: All right, next we have a letter from Steve Ambrose, and he says, Cheers, Jeff and Dave. Wow, the summer sure went by fast.
0: It sure did.
1: Jeff, sorry to hear you missed your fishing trip this year. Too bad. From what I remember hearing, you had quite a number of consecutive years going out on your annual trip. Dave, hope you had some time to relax before returning back to the classroom. Have a good school year. Thank you. The summer podcasts have been great, and so has the ASL Extra. Really looking forward to your 100th episode.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed it.
1: On a recent visit to the battle school site, I came across the pocket charts put out by LFT, I do not remember hearing about this on your podcast, so I've attached a screenshot. Not sure how Hasbro slash MMP feels about this aid. The item seems like it could be useful to noobs such as me, which makes me wonder why MMP wouldn't put out something like this along with their starter kits. Enjoy the last couple of weeks of August. Regards, Steve.
0: All right, Steve, that's a great point. I I think we did talk about those things somewhere. I remember wondering about Hasbro, but maybe we just did that off the air. Um, Maybe we'll put up a link to those also, unless we've already done that in an episode after you wrote the letter. But thanks for bringing that to our attention, and thanks for the good wishes. Well, Aaron, I think we're going to have to interrupt these letters to send you up to bed, buddy.
2: All right. Goodbye. Okay. Oh, all right, then. Good night there, young whippersnapper. Um, good night, then. Why did I ever tell you that when I was a boy, we used to have to go to bed when the sun went down? Because we didn't have any lights or anything like that. Well,
1: that's awfully terrible to hear, old man Dan, but I'd better be going to bed.
2: All right. Good night, sunny boy. All right, good night, Aaron. Good night. All right, as Aaron heads up to bed,
0: we will continue with our letters. Hell, oh, what a
2: cute little kid there you got there, Dave. Kind of reminds me of me. When I was little, he's so precocious. Who's got the next letter, Dave? Well, I'll read it, old man Dan.
0: In fact, we've got a letter here from... Jack Dempsey, and he's notifying us of this film, uh, Warsaw Uprising. It's a Polish film, and this link he gave us has got a lot of Polish writing on it, and uh, it seems to be, um, from what I had read earlier, taking uh, footage from the Warsaw Uprising and colorizing it and filming to match, and it just looks like a really unique kind of adventure. So... I'm sure we'll do a more in-depth review of that film when it gets made and is released. But in the meantime, take a look at this site, and then it'll link from this YouTube site to other uh, YouTube videos about the film. Looks amazing.
2: And it does look amazing. I remember those days that when I was real little, there wasn't color at all. In fact, anywhere in the world, the whole world was black and white. It became color one day. Like in the 19... late 50s, I think. Amazing thing. Well, are you sure you're remembering that correctly, uh, old man Dan? Absolutely, young whippersnapper. Why, my memory's as good as the day I was
0: born. Well, you wouldn't be able to remember much from the day you were born, I would think, but...
2: What are you saying there, young puppy? Are you saying there's something wrong with my memory? Uh, no. Why, my memory's perfectly fine. Well, I didn't mean anything, yeah, you know. don't interrupt me there, boy. I'm just saying. Well, I still got so many memories crammed in my head so thick in there that you couldn't stir them with a stick. All right, old
0: man Dan, why don't we um just get on with the letters. And this letter is from Stephen McIntosh from Inverness, Scotland. Another listener from Scotland. Wow, that's fantastic. He says, hey, guys, very much enjoying the show of late A film... The film reviews have been a nice addition. My favorite parts of the show are still your great interviews and general chat about scenarios you've been playing lately. Long may your podcast continue to entertain me on my bike rides to and from work. I also want to ask if you could plug a group of a few of us have started on Game Squad, dedicated to people who play, want to play ASL online using the real cardboard instead of Vassal. I've written a fairly big article on how to play like this. And there's a link to the Game Squad Club at the end for anyone interested in joining us. Take a look and see what you think. And if you could link this in your show, we'd appreciate it. Cheers from Steven. Well, Steven, you got it. We certainly will link this on the show. It's why we're here, to create the greater ASL community and to promote the game, the greatest game in the world, Advanced Squad Leader. So... Uh, We will do that for you, and hope you get a great response from that, and stay in touch. Well,
2: should I take the next one, Dave? Sure, Dan. Well, all righty then. Uh, This one's from David Winston, and he says, Thanks for these podcasts. You guys do a great job. And had it not been for your show, I would not have gotten back into ASL.
0: Well, that's great to hear. We always like to know that we're promoting the game.
2: Yeah, I always thought you were just promoting yourselves. <laughs> that's not funny, Dan. Sure, it's funny, boy. Where's your sense of humor?
0: <laughs> well, Dan, maybe it's time for you to say goodnight, huh? Well,
2: well yes, I, I guess I better be going, Dave. And before it snows out.
0: Oh, it's not going to snow, Dan. It's, it's only October. Well,
2: when I was a boy, I'll tell you about this time, Dave, when I was a boy in October, in the big snowfall of 1919... Well,
0: we really don't have time to listen to that now, Dan. But thanks for coming on the show. Hope you visit and come back next time.
2: Sure thing, Dave. I'll come back next time. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye, y'all.
0: Bye, Dan. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Jason,
3: and uh, I am in my early 40s, and I can remember seeing the ASL uh, rule book back uh, back quite some time ago when I was. It was still kind of heavier than I was, uh, and I've always been enchanted. Years later, I ended up getting the uh, starter kit just to see what all the, the fuss was about, and it got rain damaged. So, fast forward a few more years, and I have just yesterday pulled the trigger and got Beyond Valor and uh, and the rule book, and it, it's honestly because of you two. Um, There's something about the wargaming community uh, that sometimes has some uh, stereotypical impressions of angry, uh, angry, grumpy people, and because you two uh, are kind of silly, uh, very sweet, very kind, and uh, a lot of fun on your show, that, okay, uh i bet that there's more people like that so i'm going to receive my stuff i'm going to pour over the rules and like many other games i will suck at it uh but i will have fun uh and uh there you go so thank you very much guys take care oh congratulations on 100 episodes
0: well thank you jason and there's another player who got into it from the podcast we're so glad to get people inspired And uh, I should point out, Jeff is not here tonight, as you haven't already noticed. Um, We just cannot get our schedules together, and so I'm kicking out a show for you, so you don't go through withdrawals. We will have Jeffrey withdrawals, yes. Um, And and you're right, Jason. Uh, Thanks for the compliment about us not being grumpy, and it's a great thing that you have such a realistic attitude about your chances of winning as a beginning player. That's going to help you go a long way. So anyway, welcome to The Fold.
3: Hi, Dave and Jeff. This is Steve du Bois from Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now. I'm just kind of on 88 now. Uh, I know I'm kind of behind the times. But you were talking about Solitaire ASL, and I wanted to chime in a little bit. I, I, have, I, I love playing face-to-face. I have played Basil quite a bit. Uh, especially when I was in Iraq, and I also played a lot of solitaire in the past. And the reason I really like solitaire is there's a couple reasons. Number one is you really don't know what you're going up against. So it's a random role for who you're going to fight. So you can't make an, uh, an exact plan. You can't look at a scenario card and see what the enemy has and know that he only has one gun, and therefore, if you find his one gun, you're free to move around the other side or something. Because you never know what's going to pop up. It could be a half squad, it could be an SS squad with a heavy machine gun and a 92 liter. It could be a Panther. So that's what I like about it: is the uncertainty of having to maintain good tactics and good uh, gameplay throughout. Because you never know what's going to show up. The other thing I really like about it is doing the link scenarios to form a campaign, because you really have to um, keep up with your unit strength. You can't just squander your company's strength and then hope to win on a consistent basis. You have to, again, practice good tactics uh, and, and not uh, squander your strength. That's the reason I like the historical campaign games as well, because you're, you're continuing on with the same troops. Anyway, I love your podcast. Uh, you guys are anything but dull, so uh, keep it up. I, I just saw on Facebook that you passed your 100th episode. Congratulations. And um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to catching up to where you guys are at. So I hope you uh, have a great fall, and um, I hope you get to some conventions. Maybe you can make it to winter offensive in January out here in Baltimore. Anyway, take it easy. Have a great time. Roll low. Rally
0: well. Bye-bye. And thank you, Steve DuBois, for giving us uh, that great look at uh, why Solitaire is a great game to play. And I had played several games myself. Maybe, I don't know, 15, 20, 30, but I'm so blessed to have so many opponents in the area here um, that I did sell mine actually. and Now I'm kind of regretting that. Kind of wish I had it back. But Anyway, thanks for chiming in. And now, we'll take a look at a little rules section here. Continuing in our Pacific rules preparation for the release of Rising Sun, which you now have in your hands, if you had so chosen. Mine has arrived, and we'll be looking at it in a future show very soon. We hope, as soon as we can get our schedules together. And the Bonsai rules, I don't believe we covered those yet. Bonsai, it says... My um, notes say use human wave rules when you do a bonsai charge. But, difference one unit, even a single man counter, may bonsai. Even adjacent to the enemy, you can still call a bonsai charge and just go right into the hex. So, that's got a lot of benefits to it, raising the morale of that unit, increasing its movements. And if more than one unit wants to bond, to charge together, it, they must be adjacent. A leader must participate with any multi-man counter that declares a bonsai charge. So you have to have a leader with uh, the units that, that go. The bonsai counters, morale level, if you take a look at the counters for the bonsai charge, you place it on top of the unit when it declares a bonsai charge. And its morale level go up by one. It would gain eight movement factors, or have a movement factors of eight. And pinning and heat of battle would not apply. And I think we've all figured out that the pin check is the enemy of the Japanese troops. Because they can fail a morale check, flip to that red side, striped side, and keep coming. But when they're pinned, then they're not coming anymore. And they're not going to enter into close combat either. Um, also, though, they're lax, and that gives a plus one on the ambush against them. So that doesn't help them much there. Now, it makes Bonsai lax at the end of the move if it can advance into the enemy or if in an enemy location. Oh, you mark the Bonsai guy's lax at the end of the move. And then. Rule 1.6 in the G section. Elite and first line units are stealthy. The Japanese elite and first line are stealthy and the conscripts are lax. That's a great benefit because the Japanese want to use terrain a lot to hide in. That gives them advantages. They want to get into close combat often because they have those advantages we already talked about on a previous show. I believe. Yes, we did. Um, The stealthiness is great. Ordinance for the Japanese use black to hit numbers. They're not penalized with the red numbers. Unless they have captured weapons. Rule 1.611. Medium machine gun, heavy machine gun, and anti-tank rifle. Fired by Japanese squad or half squad. Would lower the breakdown number and the rate of fat fi- rate of fire by one. So they're designed to be used with the crews. Now that makes the Japanese unique. There, the mediums, heavies, and an anti-tank rifle. And I think I often forget the anti-tank rifle counts in that rule. It's easy to remember the mediums and heavies. The crews are trained to use those. So when you get those two-two-seven crews, they go with the mediums and the heavies. But they can be fired by a squad, regular squad or half squad. But you do pay the penalty of the lower breakdown number and the rate of factor lowered by one. Now a demolition charge may be placed or thrown into a Japanese squad's own location. Now that's a unique thing to the Japanese. And can make them much more deadly with a demolition charge. A demolition charge placed in the normal manner in its own location attacks only the enemy or melee units and a terrain and fortifications. Yeah, the rule specifically states that a DC placed in the normal manner but in its possessor's own location can attack only enemy and melee units and terrain and fortifications any DC attack made versus a armored fighting vehicle in the same location as the unit possessing that DC requires a target facing die roll and a position die roll. And so they can, I guess move right into a hex with an enemy. Well, how would that work? If they're in melee, no, um, place it. They move in enemies in the location with them. Yeah. I don't know what the instances that would happen. Um, I don't think I've ever done that, Use that rule. But it goes along with the concept of them being willing to blow it up with themselves in the area. And in that case, they're not um, affected by the explosion. And rule 1.61 to 1, anti-tank uh, set demolition charge by the Japanese during setup in 1945 versus the non-Russians. The Japanese get less than or equal to 25% fractions, rounded up, of their demolition charges in road locations can set up hidden, initially placed, even if no, not in concealment terrain there. So they can, the Japanese can set up these DCs deliberately to blow up vehicles in road locations, and it's never revealed to the enemy line of sight. Uh, It can be lost, this DC, to OBA or to searching. It can be detected by searching. And then if it's not lost to an OBA explosion or searching by the enemy, it can be detonated by a designated unit only as a defensive first fire as a vehicle enters the location with the set ATDC. And I think demolition charge. Now, if this check is successful, this DC will detonate, and you got a blazing wreck. Infantry using armored assault with that tank, you know, marching along next to the tank as the tank moves, are considered attacked by a normal set DC also. And once set, it can't be recovered. So they dig it in, they bury it out there, hide it in the road, and then they're not going to be able to recover it during the game. So if you choose to set it, you got to just leave it there till a vehicle comes by. Rule 1.62. Morale. Now, the Japanese, of course, historically, we think of them as very high morale troops, fanatical troops. Uh, they are exempt from a Patsy pre-armor uh, advance task check. Is that... Patsy, and a normal task check for infantry overruns. So they don't have to do the Patsy check, and uh, they don't take a check when they're getting overrun and doing the infantry overrun. Now, there's no disruption for Japanese squads. They do not disrupt. There's no surrender in the route phase. Okay, they're very fanatical troops. Unbroken squads treat a leader loss morale check, as a leader loss task check, so instead of possibly breaking and flipping to a red side, or if it's a half squad breaking and routing, uh, it's just a task check, which means they'll be pinned if they fail it. Now, do not you do not lower the morale by one if encircled with the Japanese uh, on the Japanese troops. So if you encircle them, normally you lower the dudes' morale that are encircled as you surrounded them. It affects their morale, but not the Japanese. They don't care if they're encircled in that way. Uh, heat of battle. Now, when you're a heat of battle roll for the Japanese, the roll greater than or equal to nine is going to equal berserkness. They're going to go berserk. So you're going to see that more often with the Japanese. Now, in a pillbox, they won't come charging out of the pillbox, as an exception here. Uh, they will battle Harden instead inside that pillbox. Now, the Japanese cannot create leaders at all. And rule 1.61. Now, no quarter is in effect after June of 1942. Mopping up cannot be used by the Japanese or their opponents. Uh, Japanese may massacre troops, but will not escape if captured. And it goes to that kind of code of Bushido, where, you know, the surrender is dishonor, And if the victor wins, you know, they get the honor. So if they do surrender, they're not going to try to escape if they're captured. Now, non Russians interrogating the Japanese in 1944 to 45 add a neg one to the die roll. And a concealment rule on a concealment die roll, they get a neg two to gain concealment. So they're. You know, take good advantage of the terrain as we mentioned earlier. Uh, search versus them is a plus two, so it's harder to find them when they're hiding in the terrain, unless that terrain's a building or a rubble. So I guess that kind of leaves a natural kind of terrain. Uh, rule one point six three one: hidden initial placement. The Japanese get hidden initial placement. For less than or equal to 10 percent, fractions rounded up, of their troops in a daytime scenario. So this is saying, anytime you're playing the Japanese, remember to take your hidden initial placement because you're getting 10 percent of it in a normal daylight scenario. Whether um, it, it's a night, if it's a night scenario, the Japanese will get 25 percent or less of their multi-man squad equivalents. So. A quarter of the troops are going to be hip in a nighttime scenario. Again, this Japanese hiding, contact being sneaky, uh, on board setup. Um, even if not defender, oh, of their on board setup, even if they're not the defender. So I guess in cases where they're the attacker setting up on board, you know, and then they're going to move to take a city or something. Some of those troops can be hidden. Harder to think of how that won't be as helpful as if you're the defender, but it certainly could be, you know, later on. Keep a squad hidden to then come flying out down a different path once the enemy vacates that path to deal with the visible Japanese troops, perhaps. If they're to the defender, they also get dummy counters equal to the number of the multi-man counters in the OB. So for every squad, a multi-man counter, let be specific here, you have you gain a, def- uh, a dummy counter if you're the defender. Okay, so not only they're hiding a bunch of guys, then they're covering up guys. Then I mean, then they're creating dummy stacks of guys. Now, this hidden initial placements uh, are in addition to any other hit initial placements granted by the scenario itself. And rule one point six three two, pillbox rules. For Japanese, all Japanese squads can always set up in freely granted mobile pillboxes that have a movement factor of eight. Oh, I wrote that note when I was planning to do these rules with Jeff and see if he noticed that <laughs> it was not not accurate. No, they don't get to set up in mobile pillboxes that have a movement factor of eight. So sorry. Um, the pillboxes in concealment always can be initial placement. That's the rule for the pillboxes here for the Japanese. If, um, and they're revealed as if in a jungle. So what does that mean? Um, oh, you can pass through them and not find them. I think that's that rule. Uh, only if occupy. only if the occupant is revealed. Oh, then I think they're revealed and they get a free tunnel to go with that pillbox. So this is some cool stuff. These little rules at the back portion of the Japanese section 1.6 uh, later half of that are cool. The hiddens, the dummies, the pillboxes and the tunnels added in there. And they may move through a tunnel even if an enemy is in that pillbox hex, which is normally not the case, all right? Rule 1.64 close combat well the japanese are the attackers in close combat or melee melee or ambush that is an automatic hand-to-hand so if the japanese is the attacker in close combat or they get the ambush when they're the defender that's an automatic hand-to-hand combat exception if the japanese are ambushed when they're the attacker or they're withdrawing or pinned of course now you this cannot be used versus a vehicle. Right? I wrote by can't can't be used by vehicle. Oh, by yeah, I guess a Japanese vehicle. Play, passenger's riders, crew, or pillbox dudes. Okay, they don't get to use that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the Japanese get a minus one, two. There, close combat roll in hand to hand. Or all the time, unless all the participants are pinned. And don't forget that one. Or is it all the time? Let me check the rule. 1.64. I think it's just when they get the uh, hand-to-hand. Yeah, they get an extra in italics neg one modifier in the hand-to-hand. Right. That's why they want it. Sure, they might die. Good chance of them going, but good chance of the enemy going, too. So, In rule 1.641, I don't believe I've ever used the rule Harakiri. Before a close combat capture attempt is resolved versus the Japanese, a Japanese unit may attack to eliminate itself by tossing itself off the game board. <laughs> no, I think I wrote that... For Jeff again. <laughs> Too bad he's just not here to enjoy my little jokes. Um, it may attempt to eliminate itself, period. If berserk or heroic, it may automatically eliminate itself. This just sounds so formal in, 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 to read it like this in a rule, you know, when you eliminate itself. Um, otherwise, by passing a normal task check, then it can eliminate itself. So, berserk, heroic, automatic, other dudes, Roll, attach, check. Leaderless. Not modified by the leader. That's what the triangle means. Leaderless. Neg two, bonus, if defending with a single-man counter that killed itself. This just sounds so horrible. Why am I laughing? I don't know. The the rule, put it into a rule format. Odd. Um, Neg one inexperienced and plus one if unarmed. I guess it's a little more difficult. Plus, this is that serious. I'm not making that up. Plus one unarmed. The order of the Harakiri is the heroic leader first. Best non-heroic leader then. Then the multi-man counters. Failure means no CC for you. And a neg one on a capture attempt versus you if you have failed. I guess you're just demoralized totally. Yeah, they were. I mean, and this is... <clears throat> and the opponent does, does get the casualty victory points, by the way. The opponent does get to And so, yeah, reading the rules is rather odd, I suppose. But, you know, historically, just a tragic thing, and it's just reflecting this historical reality into the rule system. So, all right, and that, I think, finishes. Let me look at my rule book here. Yep, then there's a do-your-own section with an orange band across it on page G5. Uh, This is my old rule book, not my new one, from Rising Sun. I haven't broke that open yet. Waiting to do it on the air with you folk. Uh, And then we're off to some uh, jungle terrain here, also in G, but I think we're just going to continue terrain time, working through the uh, set chapter. What is that chapter, terrain? The green section. Kind of going in order through that, if you haven't noticed. So just helps me keep organized. And so, that wraps up a rules section, getting a little meat to this episode. And now it's time for... What's What's in
2: the Box? box.
0: Alright, we're looking at two products here. The Special Ops, the Wargaming Journal by MMP, Summer 2013, issue number 4. And this product has a, at what price glory, France, 1914 to 1918. And it seems to do a nice job uh, with that game. And some uh, Operation Market Garden uh, article on topic for operations research for the operations game and the OCS game. And, of course, we're interested here in ASL. And so I grabbed this as I was getting shipped Rising Sun saying, yeah, what the heck, it's got some scenarios in it, and I'm a sucker for that, so I'll buy this product. And a little more disappointed with this issue than last in terms of ASL material. So there's an article by Chaz Argent, Into the Land of the Rising Sun, which is a nice look at what's in the Rising Sun. And there's some nice tables, 1 and 2, that lay out the original scenario number of these, uh, is it 32 or so? scenarios that are included in Rising Sun, and where they came from. Uh, There's, of course, Kota Bushido, Bushido, and Gung-ho, and some from an annual 97, 96, Journal 1, General 30, um, and so on, many, many more. And then there's uh, another table, that's Table 1, tells you what the old number was, what the new number is, and the source. And then Table 2, Rising Sun Scenario Balance, adjustments, lists the scenario number and the balance adjustment, what it is, and then the new BI number, which is the um, battlefield integrity number, which I don't use, um, but it's out there. And so uh, if you want a table that tells you quickly the changes in these scenarios, and you're not going to buy Rising Sun, you can really use this little chart but it's a lot of money to spend for a little chart. Now, I got a discount on this from a friend who values the work we do here at the two half-squads, and uh, therefore I went ahead and made a purchase, but it's a lot of money. It's got, you know, the counters in there and for other wargaming needs. But as far as ASL is concerned, she has done a nice job with this article on Rising Sun. He also talked about the victory conditions and the way that they are reworded for clarity, and he gave a couple of samples. And I found that to be very interesting. And uh, looking at the special scenario rules and how those go and how they're changed, and he took a look at the counters and and maps. And it includes table three, which lists the overlays included with Rising Sun. It's nice. It's a great preview thing, and uh, I've been really great to have this in a in a issue of the journal well in advance, the publication of the game. There is another ASL article, and it's like two columns. Two columns on a uh, three-quarter of a page, two-thirds of a page, by Daniel and Preston. Exit Stage Right, talking about exit victory conditions, and how to... But it's... it's um, talks about the combat victory points, what they are, the mirror image concept for the off-board movement, and so on, and... Um, Defender Options, which is a really short thing. And this could have been blown out into a full-blown article with illustrations and examples and so on. And it's not. It's a two-column thing that seems quickly kicked out just to kind of, I don't know, maybe get some ASL material into Special Ops. So nothing to write home about there. And we have two Starter Kit scenarios, S54 and S55. S-54 is the Russians versus Germans in Russia, August 43, Five, four four and a half turns, nice short scenario, infantry only for you beginners there, and the fire brigade was S-55 in Romania, 1944, you get to use your Romanian troops, allied with some Germans, it's infantry only, also against the Russians. There's an ASL Scenario 07. Uh, Broken Wings by Pete Schelling, Russia, 1944. Five and a half turns. You do get some tank action in this one. And a fortification purchase ch- uh, chart. So it can give you some variable choices. for Makes it better for replay. And... Scenario 08, Crucifix Hill, are in Germany, 1944, also by Pete Schelling. And it has a six and a half turn, also with a reinforcement table that gives you the variable uh, reinforcements coming on board. So that's kind of nice. I kind of like the way a lot of scenarios are going that direction, getting some variety in them. There are five, six pillboxes, eight trenches in this one, so... That could be a whole lot of fun. I haven't played a good old, big old trench and pillbox game in a long time. It has the Americans trying to come in there and uh, knock out the Volksgrenadier division in 1944. And that is it for Special Ops Summer 2013 issue number four. And we'll take a look at bonsai. The newsletter of the Texas ASL Club, August 2013, Volume 18, Number 1, now available. Well, available a while ago, by the time this show airs. But this issue is all ASL all the time. And in it, there's the um, scenario analysis of scenario GD-10, Applesauce, by Matt Shostak. Lays out the uh, advantages, disadvantages, has nice maps all in color. My copy isn't because I printed it in black and white. But it is on color online and talks about the uh, Russian defensive philosophy and setup with some great diagrams and some great illustrations of the maps talks about the Commissars. I like the way in this article Matt has laid out each of the items, um, no, each of the units, like the 76L for the Soviets. And it says, mission, destroy German armor and or support the defense of the town against infantry. Keep in mind smoke is available, and so on. He gives some, a nice little quick, oh, here's my weapon. What could it possibly do? And he lays it out in a very short paragraph. Or a simple sentence like, Commissar's mission, rally the troops, or else. Well said, Matt. And then the German attack plan. And um, it's not a replay, it's a scenario analysis from both sides. And I I guess he set up both the attack and defense, possible uh, attack and defense on his own. Something that I consider doing for this very show. And there's a player profile. John Hyler is interviewed in this issue of Banzai. Easing the Freeze, an article by Dan Preston. Sounds a little familiar. Did I not just say he wrote an article in Special Ops? Let me check, boys and girls. Where is that? Page 22. It is Dan Preston. Look at that. But this article he did for Bonsai, easing the freeze, I think I liked it a lot better than, than the one he did for Special Ops. And it's a lot longer, too. Uh, it does not have illustrations with it. But he's talking about that very, very crazy thing we all uh, hate when it's done to us and love when we can do it to someone else, is the... VBM Freeze, Vehicle Bypass Move Freeze, or the sleeves Freeze. And kind of walks through in great detail what your options are. And I remember reading another article on the same topic, but I don't remember where it was. Maybe there have been a couple. But he does a nice job of laying that out, Dan, so thank you. There's a Starter Kit... Corner section by Vincent Maresca, talking about how they got together as starter kit players, and takes a really interesting look at showing you how to look for little like lines of sight that you may not normally find. In it, he references the um, geometry of ASL article that's been published elsewhere, but has a nice map showing a whole bunch of line of sights, and if you Glance at it, you think, "Wow, look! At, look, I didn't see some of those." And so that's I like that article. And then there's the tournament after action report and first timer impressions article by Ed Hack. Talking about his background and going into the um, Texas tournament this year, the games he played. There's the 21st annual Texas team tournament results tables. 21st Annual Texas Team Tournament Wrap-Up by Rick Reinish. Talking about his experiences and uh, the mini-tournaments and all the things that went on. Sound like a great time. I hated to not be able to be there. And then there's a tactical tip by Dan Preston. Third time. Wow. Uh, in which he makes a really nice point about the high po- high firepower open-topped anti-aircraft vehicles like the verbal wind, verbal wind and how they're so vulnerable to getting shot at but they have such a high firepower that if you park them with a couple of orchards between you and the target that plus two is going to help you a lot more as the you know open top vehicle guy then it's going to help your um, it's going to help you a lot more with protection more than it's going to help your opponent survive when you have such high firepower, 24 shots and so on. I really enjoyed the This Happened to Me section, where they guys talk about David Longstreet and Kermit Scott Mullins, about what bizarre things happened to them in their ASL games. And a little ad for the Texas ASL, Doseki Pack. And finishing off with some club notes, because this is a local um, ASL club newsletter, actually. when it's actually feels like a whole journal right in your hands there, or right on your computer for free. All ASL, all the time. And all for free. Can't beat that with a stick, can ya? So thank you, gentlemen in Texas. We appreciate your efforts. Well, I think that's going to just about do it for this evening, folks. So hope you've enjoyed the show, even without Jeff. And roll low and rally well, but not when you're playing us. Bye-bye, everyone.